The following presentation is brought to you by Perusia. Please stay tuned at the end for more information about the many fine resources available from Perusia. One of the things that I'm very honored to be able to do this year is make a couple pilgrimages in the footsteps of St. Paul. I didn't know that the Pope was going to make this a jubilee year of St. Paul when I planned those pilgrimages. This definitely seems to be a movement of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, things that just were not planned consciously at all, but fell into place by what I consider God's providence, is that on the 21st, I began the pilgrimage I made to Turkey in the city after which your town is named, Antioch, which is today in Turkey. It had been in Syria in past centuries, but now is inside the borders of Turkey. And as mentioned in my introduction, I have biritual faculties with the Maronite Rite. The head of our Rite is his Beatitude, Cardinal Osfeyev, and he is the Patriarch of Antioch. And this city is a great place to consider St. Paul because it was from there that he began his mission to the Gentiles and went out to cities all over what was then Asia Minor, today Turkey, and then from there to Europe. And it's the place where we were first given the name Christian. As we read in Acts of the Apostles, St. Luke notes that, but it's also the city where we were first called Catholics. St. Ignatius of Antioch, who wrote uh, seven letters on his way to being martyred in Rome. He was arrested in Antioch and taken away to Rome. And it was in those letters written in 107 AD that we see the earliest mention of the word Catholic to refer to the church as universal. And so this was a great place. And again, just a couple days after having arrived in Turkey, in Asia Minor, I had planned to be in Tarsus, but it was there for the opening mass of the Jubilee of St. Paul in his hometown, the place where he was born. And so it's been a, a great, great uh, start of this Jubilee. And certainly it's going to be extremely important for us to understand St. Paul better. His life, especially as portrayed in Acts of the Apostles, but also his writings and his epistles. And we need to be nourished by them with so much depth. And one of the points I tried to make in my book, it's called St. Paul, Steward of the Mysteries. The title is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, where he calls himself the steward of the mysteries. But if you're familiar with the Eastern Church, they use the word mysterion or mystery for the word sacrament. In fact, sacrament is simply translating the word mystery. And the seven sacraments or the seven mysteries are precisely 
the things of which St. Paul was a steward. And I'd like us to focus on some elements of how he lived out that stewardship in ministering these mysteries or the sacraments. First and most important, we need to examine his own experience and his teaching on baptism. There's a certain crisis about baptism in our day. Many people are not even baptizing their children. And many of you who are grandparents know of children who may not have baptized their children. And it's a grief and a sadness. Because they say, on one hand, what sounds noble, well, I'll wait until they're old enough and they'll decide for themselves. Something that they do not accord their children in terms of choosing which language they will speak. They don't let them go through life mute until they're 18 and then ask them if they'd rather speak Russian, Chinese, or German. They enforce teaching them English, which is not bad, despite what some of our political candidates might think. It's good to learn our language. Our language is a wonderful language. But if you are going to teach them English and let them have the rights of a citizen of this country, why would you not give them the rights of a citizen of heaven? This is going to be something that we need to see as what is at stake in baptism. It's not about keeping grandma happy. It's about giving them the rights of the citizenship of heaven. And this is what we want to communicate. So let's try to understand it as St. Paul taught about baptism. First is his own experience. He was committed to persecuting Christians who had come from Judaism, especially seeking out those Jewish Christians who, like himself, came from the Greek world. Remember, the persecution began when St. Stephen was arguing with the Greek-speaking Jews and winning, so they killed him. And St. Paul wanted to continue that, arresting them, and he got permission because of a treaty that existed for the Jewish people. He got permission and papers to go and arrest the Greek-speaking Jews in Damascus if they had become Christians. And we know the episode. He's on the road and he hears the voice say, Shaul, Shaul. Remember his name Saul, or Shaul in Hebrew, is the name of the most famous member of his tribe, King Saul, because he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And he hears that and he says, and he hears the words too. Why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, what is utterly astounding in this is that St. Paul had not known Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. His first encounter was in that vision. And yet, Jesus our Lord says to him, why are you persecuting me? 
and he's blinded and he goes off into Damascus. He prays and fasts for three days and Ananias is told in another vision to go to him and baptize him and he baptizes him and not only does he receive the regeneration of baptism but the scales fall from his eyes and he can see again. Now this is something that is going to affect the, his ministry and his understanding of baptism. And I want us to keep this episode in mind. First of all, he is going to continue going throughout Asia Minor, baptizing people. He doesn't only preach, he also baptizes, does he not? And we see that mentioned not only in Acts of the Apostles when he baptizes specific individuals like Lydia, the first woman, as a matter of fact, the first person baptized in Europe. And he goes on and baptizes the jailer in the same city of Philippi. And he goes on and teaches. And then also in his letters, like in 1 Corinthians, he mentions that I baptized Crispus and, um, and also Gaius and Stephanus. So he mentions this. And also in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19, uh, you see how very important it is the way that he baptizes a group of individuals, he sees them as Christians. And he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit? To which they respond, receive him. We didn't know there is one. Well, then by whom were you baptized? We were baptized by John, John the Baptist. And St. Paul has to explain that baptism is not adequate. And so he baptizes them into Jesus Christ. And then they receive the Holy Spirit in that context. Because an inadequate baptism is just that, inadequate. So we see his actions throughout his ministry as being very important and as showing the importance of baptism. But what I'd like to do is go through his teachings chronologically. Let's see how his thoughts on baptism develop from the earliest letters where he mentions it to the last letter where he mentions it. The first letter where he mentions baptism is 1 Corinthians. And you see this uh, in chapter 6. is the first mention of baptism. He says there, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the sensuous, and the word sensuous there also means effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor vilifiers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But then he says the contrast between these sins, and notice these would be considered mortal sins for which you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now St. Paul never mentions you're going to go to hell for that. He, does, he never mentions going to hell in any of his letters. He just says you won't go to heaven and you draw your own conclusions. But he says in contrast to these various sins, 
that characterized the world in which he lived. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Now, this is very important. At this early stage, the letter to the Corinthians is probably written by 54, most likely in 54 AD. And notice how he connects, you were washed. The same vocabulary he's going to use for baptism in Ephesians chapter 5, when he speaks of how Christ washed the church. And also in Titus chapter 3, he's going to speak about being washed for the regeneration, for the re washed for the rebirth. Same vocabulary. But here he connects baptism, that being washed in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. That being washed in the sacrament is when they were sanctified. They received a sanctification of being made holy. That's what sanctify means, to make someone holy. Sanctus facere in Latin. And so the baptism is there to make them holy and you were justified. Baptism also brings justification. Now the justification is something that we have to say, how is that possible? Let's hold off answering that question till we get to another letter. Because I'm sure people asked him that question and he then developed it more in a later letter. But just for now to see at this earliest stage, baptism is a washing that makes you holy and a washing that makes you justified. And this is because this is sacred scripture and not from the book of my personal or your opinions. It's rather that this is something we therefore must preach in our society and among the churches. But it's also going to be an important connection with baptism in which it separates you from these sins that separate you from heaven. That this living a life of sin is incompatible with the life of baptism. That's why it says, such were some of you, but you don't do this adultery, idolatry, fornication, etc. You leave that behind. So that's another thing for us to consider as we go through baptism here. Then, we see baptism reappear a second time in the same letter. In chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, beginning with verse 12. And in here, he's a key verse is, For just as the body is one and has many parts, Though all the parts of the body being one, being all the parts of the body being many, the body is one, so also is Christ. But then, in, and this is the main thing he's trying to say. Now, this teaching of Jesus 
and the body of Christ is going to be a, an extremely important element for what we are going to understand by baptism and going back to Paul's baptism. Because from that oneness of the body and the diversity of parts, he says, why is that possible? Because by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Here we see that St. Paul is teaching that the oneness of the body of Christ is rooted in this mystery of baptism. A baptism that occurs by the power of the Holy Spirit, exactly as Jesus our Lord had taught, Unless you are born again of water and the Spirit, you cannot have eternal life. St. Paul understands exactly the same teaching. And that this is something that breaks down certain differences that no longer matter in the light of baptism. You're not Jews or Greeks anymore. This was a big distinction the Jewish people who lived among the Greek communities around the Mediterranean world had to work very hard to get special dispensations from paying taxes and serving in the army and a number of other things because the taxes for the ancient cities went to support the temples of the false gods. Jews separated themselves from that. Soldiers in the army had to worship the standards. You always see those Romans carrying a bronze eagle into battle. Well, they would offer sacrifice to those bronze eagles. And if you wanted to be in the army, you had to practice idolatry. Jews could not do that. And they separated themselves clearly. They would not eat in the houses of Gentiles. If Gentiles ate in the house of a Jew, they would have to break the plates that the Gentiles ate from. You can see why perhaps the importance of paper plates was developed. <laughs> so these distinctions, and then within the Roman Empire, the distinction between slaves and free was an extremely important one. You had no rights as a slave, and you had a lot of rights as a free, and if you're a Roman citizen, like Paul was, even more rights. And in Christ, in baptism, you don't really depend on your identity as a slave or a free person, a Jew or a Greek, and any of those other distinctions. Something he's gonna bring up again in Galatians 3. But these distinctions don't matter so as much as the distinction between being baptized and unbaptized, being in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through this mystery of baptism versus being in the world, of the world, and on the road to condemnation. That distinction matters more than any of these others, as once important they had been. And then, again, at the same time, the diversity within the one body is something very important, and he relates this diversity of gifts 
and roles within the body of Christ to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the teaching on the spiritual gifts in this context. And you, I have to ask, why did St. Paul use this image of the body when Jesus our Lord had never used it? Where does St. Paul come up with this idea? Back to his own baptism and conversion. When Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? When what all Paul was trying to do was persecute Christians. What he learned from that first encounter he had with Jesus Christ is that whatever you do to my church, you do to me. Whatever you do to the least member of my church, you do to me. And he realized from that teaching by Christ, as he reflected on it years later, this would be about 18 years or more after he met Christ. And in that reflection, he began to realize if Jesus so identifies himself with the members of the church, then it's as if they are members of his body. And they're not just some organization out there. And this teaching is one that he then develops here in the context of talking about baptism, but also about the diversity of gifts to which it's related. Because the right to have these gifts and exercise them is something that the Holy Spirit gives us as members of Christ. So that becomes part of his earliest teaching on baptism. But then we also go on to the next place where he mentions these distinctions. And that is in Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 23 down to 29. Now remember, in Galatians, he's dealing with a problem. The people in Galatia had treated him with incredible love and devotion. He had gotten some eye disease while he was preaching there. And he, he said, I know that if you could have, you would have plucked out your own eyes and give it to, given it to me. And in fact, they were famous for certain salves for the eyes, and eye diseases in that region, and still are. And so he's dealing with a community he loved very much and who loved him until somebody came preaching that you must be circumcised, if you're a man, of course, you must be circumcised in order to be a Christian. St. Paul did not tell you the whole truth. And that a group that we today call the Judaizers, they tried to get the Christians baptized by Paul to go back and get circumcised and then be counted as Christians. And St. Paul addresses this question throughout the letter to the Galatians. And he keeps on saying to them something that will come up in Romans and also in Philippians. That 
It is not going to be by circumcision. These, that work of the law cannot save you. Why? This is a very important argument for understanding his teaching on baptism. Not only here, but in Romans, Philippians, and in Colossians. Circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. It was a sign given to Abraham. And that he and all the men that were part of his growing clan, including the slaves, all of them had to be circumcised. And in one sense, it's an interesting thing because it's a symbol that remains very personal because this is something that obviously is very private. But it's also something that the whole community shares. And thirdly, it's a permanent sign. It's a sign that cannot be undone. So these characteristics of circumcision and the Old Covenant are very important for Jewish community to this day. But because St. Paul had a greater awareness than did the Judaizers that Jesus Christ is not simply a continuation of the Old Covenant. St. Paul was aware of what we see in, for instance, Jeremiah chapter 31, where there's a promise of a new covenant. Why? The old one was broken. They had so thoroughly disobeyed the commandments of God and so thoroughly worshipped other gods that both Jeremiah and Ezekiel proclaimed the covenant to be void and null. They had broken that covenant. But God still gave an everlasting promise to Abraham and to David, and so he can't be unfaithful. So what does he do? God promises a new covenant, and the new covenant will not be in circumcision. That will not be the sign, but it will be a new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. Something that St. Paul is the first to actually write down, and that we see this in the Eucharist. That is the blood of the new covenant that we share in the Eucharist. But I go ahead of myself. But just to be alert that St. Paul was aware that Jesus Christ did something radically new. And you can't go back to the old one. And that's why he fought them so strenuously. Plus he knew, being a human being, that you would not get most Gentile men to submit to circumcision. That was one of the issues that stopped them from entering into Judaism fully. They did not want to undergo that. And Paul recognized not only don't they want to undergo it, but it's not necessary. Our salvation is in Christ. And so he says here, before faith came, this is in Galatians 3, 23, before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed, so that the law was our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under custodian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. 
So he's saying that this old law and this old covenant is done and we have faith in Jesus Christ and this is something that is open to us all. Now, listen to what he says then. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is, therefore, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs to the promise. Now, let's take a look at that. Baptism here is understood as putting on Christ like you would put on a garment. It's because of this verse that we still clothe the newly baptized in white. Whether as babies or as adults, we put a white garment on them as a sign of being clothed in Christ. And, you know, usually and generally very much for the better, clothes that we wear are what people see in us. That's the part that is visible, and that's a good thing. By being clothed with Christ, we should let them see Jesus in us, on us, and around us. And seeing Christ in us, seeing us clothed in Christ, seeing us acting like Christ, and learning how to think like Christ, and learning how to love like Christ, is a gift of baptism. And that is better than seeing the real me. Contrary to what so many in our culture say, just got to be yourself. Some would rather have the Frank Sinatra, I got to be me, rather than the St. Paul, I got to be Jesus. And this is a very basic choice that living out our baptism is going to lead us to make. And notice again, as I said with the passage in 1 Corinthians 12, he goes on that if you are baptized into Christ, you put on Christ, therefore there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Because the oneness that we share in Christ supersedes those differences. None of those distinctions and differences are nearly so important as the oneness in Jesus Christ. The same oneness in Christ that Jesus on the night before he died prayed that we may be one. Now it's not going to be one and the same. We are going to be different and we are still going to think differently. Women will think with a feminine approach and men will think with a masculine approach. And different cultural aspects will come in. But those are secondary compared to the oneness in Christ. And each one of those can be used by Christ. We don't destroy them or suppress them. But rather we let Christ elevate everything that is good in our culture. Everything good in our individuality. Everything good in our personality. By transforming it into his image. And using it. And in that way, the oneness that we share by virtue of our baptism supersedes these various differences. And also, as he says here, makes us heirs to the promises that God gave. Now, 
we also see that there's more on baptism. If it does all this, how? This is the time for us to try to deal with that question. And in the next letter that he wrote, Romans, St. Paul explains how it is that baptism has this kind of power. It's not a power that is in H2O. It's not something that comes just from the chemicals and the elements that make up the water as such. There is a power that comes into that water. As a matter of fact, I oftentimes get the question, why, if Jesus is without sin, why did he need to get baptized? He needed to get baptized in order to make baptism worthwhile. He didn't get holy from the water. He made the water holy by him entering into it. So he puts power into it. Whereas, and so because he's been baptized, when we get baptized ourselves, then we get his power from it. But what is that power? We look at Romans chapter 6. Where he says, Do you not know that whoever of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. The power of baptism comes exactly from the meaning of this new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. Baptism is not just a ceremony to keep some certain people happy. Baptism is an entrance into the death of Jesus. And St. Paul never makes this explicit in any of his writings. But certainly, through the centuries of the church, we have seen that Christians would baptize originally using Jewish mikvahot. A mikvah is a, a place to go for ritual bathing. And they still have mikvahot. The ideal mikvah, place for water, is that A, it has running water into it, fresh running water. Secondly, it has steps that go down, you go down unclean, and then steps going back out, and you come out clean. And this became the model for Christian baptistries. In fact, two of the three of the earliest baptistries discovered by archaeologists are in the Holy Land. Two of them in Nazareth, one at the house of Our Lady, one at the house of St. Joseph, and then there's also a baptistry at the shepherd's field, just outside baptism, a first century baptistry. And they would use the steps to go down. And this became a symbol of dying with Christ, that when we're baptized, we're baptized into his death. And when we come out of the water, that's a symbol of the resurrection, because we're also baptized into his resurrection. And this is going to be something key in all of St. Paul's teaching on each one of the sacraments, and not only St. Paul, but also in the Gospels and in St. Peter and the other writings. That the power 
and authority of each and every one of these sacraments. The power of these mysteries is always going to be rooted in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his glorious resurrection from the dead. This is key. And in this entering into the death of Jesus through baptism, we can then see how it is that he makes us one. He puts our old self to death so that our new self can rise in him. He puts to death the distinctions that we make based on our ethnic background and gender and religious foreground and all that. He puts that to death so that we can rise as one in him. We can also see that what St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Why is that possible in baptism? Because you're baptized into the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection which sanctifies us. The death of God's Son on the cross makes us holy. The death of the Son of God on the cross and his glorious resurrection makes us justified. And this is what we receive in our baptism. And this is why we want to have our children and all those who are unbaptized to come to this great mystery, this sacrament. Paul goes on, For if we have been conformed in the likeness of his death, then we shall be conformed to his resurrection. And this we know, that our old humanity was crucified with Jesus, so that the sinful body might be destroyed, and that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is justified from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. This is exactly why you can see his whole perspective on what he's been saying and what we will see him say yet on baptism and why it's so very, very important, so absolutely necessary for us. Then... We also see baptism mentioned very briefly in Ephesians chapter 4, where St. Paul, as a matter of fact, the whole letter to the Ephesians is probably written as a long instruction for the newly baptized. That's most likely what is going on in the whole letter. And so he says, I as a prisoner for the Lord, beg you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all lowliness and meekness, with patience, forbearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. Notice, again, he brings it up. Baptism is to be connected with our unity. Jesus Christ did not come to establish many denominations. He came to call one body. 
And the model for the unity of the church, according to the teaching of Jesus in John 17, is that we should be one as he and the Father are one. A radical oneness. And that that goes along with this one baptism. But again, in that same context, he also says, but grace is given to each of us according to the measure of, God's, of Christ's gift. And he gave these gifts. Some are apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That oneness of the faith is also the goal of what we seek, and not each of us doing our own thing. Then, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. He warns us about something else that can divide, not only the distinctions of ethnic background, gender, and so on, but he says in chapter 2, verse 8 of Colossians, See to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. It is so easy for a lot of people to use various philosophies. What does he mean by the elemental spirits? This was a belief that there are spirits who run the universe, the cosmic spirits. And if you think that this is something simply from a long time ago and that that's all over with, just go to one of the local bookstores. Go to Borders and look in the New Age section. Look in the occult section. Look at the way commercials are. You should ask the gods of this. They're talking about asking the automobile gods. The automobile gods. Even the pagans didn't, weren't that dumb. <laughs> and this kind of talk is becoming part. Of, you have bad karma and all this other stuff. is part of commercials now. And it's entering into the world of our modern people. And this kind of use of philosophy is going to divide us up. And that's what he's saying, be, be careful. of that. There is philosophy according to Christ. And what makes it a philosophy according to Christ? He is the basis upon which we judge our human ideas. Our human ideas are true insofar as they conform to Christ, and insofar as they disagree with Jesus Christ, they are wrong. And that's going to be the difference there. Because it's in Christ in, who, in whom, and we see in verse 9, the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The full, he says there, the whole fullness of deity dwells in a bodily form in Jesus. And you've come to the fullness of life in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now here's what's key. Keep in mind what we've been talking about. Here in verse 11. In Jesus Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. In other words, he's taking the Jewish notion of circumcision and saying, that which I disagreed with has been replaced. The new circumcision you have is not done by hands. 
You have a circumcision in your heart. As the Old Testament said frequently, be circumcised in your heart and not in your flesh. In other words, have a permanent sign in your heart. Like circumcision was a permanent sign in your body, let there be a permanent sign in your heart for the circumcision not made by hands, because you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our, trans, uh, our trespasses, having canceled the bond that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he even disarmed the principalities, these elemental spirits. He disarmed the principalities and the powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over these elemental spirits and powers and principalities in Jesus Christ. Now, what's very key here is that he sees circumcision as having its parallel in Christian baptism. Baptism is what replaces it. So not only don't you circumcise, because again, that would also exclude all the women. But baptism is something that applies to everybody, men and women alike. And in Judaism, if you were circumcised to become a Jew, but you were a slave, your children would not be considered fully Jewish, nor your grandchildren. Only your great-grandchildren, it took three generations before you considered fully Jewish. Whereas in baptism into Christ, everybody, no matter what your background or gender, you are fully in Christ. That's why this replaces circumcision with an excellence circumcision could never come close to. But it also makes a permanent mark in us, in our hearts, what the church calls an indelible character. This is something that cannot be removed, even if we end up in hell, even if we end up condemned. Our baptism goes with us to hell and is inflamed all the more painfully as a result of our sin because we abandoned Christ. But you can't get rid of it. It's there for all eternity. And so this helps to bring about a fuller explanation of what he had said, I think as time had gone on, about how baptism is superior to circumcision and that there's a completely new covenant here. And then finally, one last passage. This comes toward the end of his life, probably in a year or so before he was martyred in Rome. This is the letter to Titus in chapter 3 beginning with verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Pay attention to that. The loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. What does that mean? Except that our Savior is God. God who has appeared to us, just as in Colossians 2. The fullness of the divinity is in bodily form in Jesus here. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Now the reason I want to highlight these early teachings about St. Paul connecting the divinity of Jesus Christ with baptism 
is because it's not only the death and resurrection of Jesus that makes baptism effective, but it's because it's God made flesh who died on the cross that it's possible for us to experience, to receive the benefit of his death. If he were not God, if Jesus Christ were not God incarnate, then his death would be effective only for the people when he was alive. The people who saw him. It could have no other effect. Because if he were just man and not God, as the Jehovah Witnesses and many other groups teach, then his act of salvation would have been in the past. It'd be over and done with. But because Jesus is God, in his divine nature, he has no time. Now, this is a very important concept because it's hard for us who are limited by time to really get a grasp of this. But it is essential, and we can. God does not have a past. He does not have a future. For God, everything is right now. There's, he didn't die in the past. That's why even some Catholics foolishly used to teach back in the 60s, I can recall this, that let's get rid of the crucifixes because we are a resurrection people and hallelujah is our song. And they said the crucifixion is over, now's the time of the resurrection. That is unbeknownst to them probably, certainly not something they intend, but that is heretical. Why? God doesn't have a past that's gone. We do. Some of us are really glad for that, too. But we have a past and it's gone. For God, the very creation of the world is still present. The end of time is still present. And the moment of Christ's birth is still present. And the moment of his dying on the cross is present right now. And the moment of his rising from the dead is present right now. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because he's God, he has no temporal differences. Everything is right now. And what does that mean in terms of baptism and all the other sacraments? Is that what is eternally present to Jesus Christ what is never forgotten, what is never past, but what is eternally present to him is his death and his resurrection. And when we are baptized, he makes it present to us. That's how I can receive the benefit of it. So what St. Paul is saying about dying with Christ and rising with him is possible only because it's God who became flesh and died and rose. And I can receive that benefit here, now and forever, because he's God. So that's why it's important for him to bring out the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Again, he's talking about Jesus that saved us. Not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy. His mercy far exceeds any of the gifts that we can do. As if the little drawings 
that we made for, for our moms and dads, that they put on the refrigerator door and all that, as if our righteousness is like those little drawings. Not very good, poorly executed, and certainly never going to pay back for giving birth, getting sick, sleepless nights, giving up your money and all the other stuff you do for your kids, you can't, but you treat it as precious, right? Well, the Lord looks at our little righteous deeds as precious, but compared to what His mercy does, they're nothing. They're like those little pieces of paper we made compared to what our mother went through in giving birth to us. And He says, it's in virtue of His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit, which he poured out richly upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that we might be justified by his grace and become heirs in the hope of eternal life. So what we see is that the mercy of Christ is the power by which we're saved, not our righteousness. But that mercy is poured out upon us in the washing of regeneration, our baptism. We receive that infinite mercy of Christ at our baptism. And this is something he pours out so that we might be justified. And what do we see here? This last teaching of St. Paul on baptism is like a bookend from his first one in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through 11, where we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified. Here, as he ends his life and gives his final instructions on baptism to his disciple, new Bishop Titus, the bishop of the island of Crete, he tells him the same thing, that this baptism, this is a washing regeneration in which we get mercy and justification by grace. And it's possible because he died and rose, and it's possible because he's God. We can see that St. Paul is pulling together some of the most important elements of our Christian faith as he teaches us baptism. And if St. Paul thought that it was important enough to write this down, and if the Holy Spirit thought, even more importantly, that it was so important to inspire Paul to write this down, then we too must be, ask for the gift of the same inspiration of the same Holy Spirit to teach this in all of its fullness. So that as St. Peter taught his community in 1 Peter 3, baptism now saves you. And this is part of our gospel and part of our proclamation. And it's one aspect of our fidelity to the Word of God. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation brought to you by Perusia. Perusia is an Australian-based apostolate bringing you the best in Catholic formation resources. Visit the website at www.perusiamedia.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.